Joe, do you read my mind? Are you reading my mind right now? That's sick. More Wiser Podcast. Angela Alexander, audiologist. Audiology and controversy is not a link I think most people would expect, but you seem to find yourself right on the front lines of one. And you recently posted on LinkedIn and at the end of it, it said, quote, dear haters, I have so much more for you to hate. Just be patient. What led to that post? Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) Coming in hot. Okay. So I, I, you're right. Audiology and controversy kind of, it seems counterintuitive. Why would ear nerds like argue with each other about anything? Um, there's been something strange about the area of audiology that I work in, which is auditory processing disorder. Um, and it's fraught with controversy. But you know what? Let me just tell you. For a client who has difficulties, there's no controversy at all. It's just a problem and they need help with it. And if I'm going to completely spill the tea all over this desk, my profession has done a really job at meeting those needs. So um, there happens to be a person out there in, in my profession who um, he has, oh, I actually said he uh, has... <laughs> Has, oh God, now that's, can I just say there's not a lot of men in the profession of audiology? So I've just narrowed it down quite specifically. Sure. But um, he's given some talks where he puts up pictures. He'll say, Angela's doing a really great job of promoting auditory processing. And then he'll put up pictures of old timey, um, like old timey equipment and black and white pictures and whatnot. Basically what he's saying is Angela's done a great job, but it's so, it's just too bad that she follows an archaic way of treating things, which I'm actually working on helping adults and children understand speech sounds, which I know that sounds pretty archaic because once we went from grunts to actually, you know, pronouns. <laughs> sure. Speech. Yeah. Yeah. Speech. Um, it may have seemed like a big jump. Oh, I don't know if we should work on. Anyway. So from my perspective, <laughs> this is so funny. I am so sorry. You know how I told you that my brain is fairly organized on APD, but then as soon as I get to my own personal story, it goes pew, 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 pew. So the controversy is one of those things where my brain is all over the place because I cannot understand, I cannot even begin to understand how an audiologist or how someone who has entered a field to help people has forgotten the most important part, which is helping people instead of just proving that they're right or, you know, like somehow I'm in this meta experience and I'm not meaning Facebook where the problem with auditory processing is people can't understand what they hear. And then I'm in this really odd juxtaposition where my profession isn't listening to the clients who say they can't understand what they hear. So strange. But- I know! It's like so <laughs> frustrating. But can I just say it's it's changing? And there are there is this like wave of 
kind, generous, confident, supportive, um, audiologists and speech language pathologists, and they are changing, but it is a grassroots movement, which can sometimes feel painfully slow. But if I look at where we're at compared to where we are, we are so far ahead. Um, well, we're, yeah. where's the beef though? I, I guess you're trying to help people. And if all of you have this same overarching mission, yeah. I mean, sadly, most things come down to money or power. Are you threatening other clinicians ability to generate revenue by by treating APD, I guess I, I don't understand where the disconnect is. I know, right? Um, no, let me just say this threat is not commercial. Um, it, this is not, I am not undermining somebody's ability to make money. I am not trashing a product. I am not, I'm not trashing the fact that only 60% of our universities even have a course in auditory processing even though it's probably a hundred times more prevalent than childhood hearing loss. And the fact that it could be a majority of our jobs moving forward isn't frustrating at all. So where did this controversy start? And it's funny because it's actually more fun talking to you about the controversy than somebody within my profession, because we get so bogged down in the nitty gritty that we forget the overarching thing, but you get the overarching thing. The overarching thing is it is ridiculous that this is even considered a controversy. Um, there were a lot of different schools of thought in audiology on why auditory processing exists and why and how we can treat it or even if it's treatable. So there were a lot of different thought leaders and many years ago, it was a little bit more important to be right than to cohabit the same space. And so since a lot of those thought leaders are still alive and active in this space, there is some polarity that happens. But I guess I personally see myself as somebody who wants to look at the entire big picture, find the best parts of all of those schools of thought, and see if we can bring it together to create a better patient experience, because right now, they don't have it. So the old guard is still around, is what it sounds like, and and they're the ones who are, I guess, adverse to this change, that there could be another way to, to treat people? Yeah. I mean, it's not even, I'd say probably the old guard is actually coming around to seeing what kind of consensus we can build as opposed to tearing each other apart. Um, but there's, there's this whole like generation of audiologists who were taught by these people and the Thinking is so inflexible until you get to the point where you say, okay, so you have diagnosed this person with an auditory processing disorder. Do you know how to help them? And when those people actually get right down to it, they don't know how to improve the person's situation. And as clinicians, that should be our first thought is what can we do to help these people? Um, and I am lucky. I have gotten to see things that most people have never gotten to see. I get to see this change. And there, there's this amazing, there's this amazing comedian named DJ Demers. Have you ever heard of him? No, I haven't. Okay. So he actually does 
he has severe to profound hearing loss. He is not an audiologist, but he has these amazing audiology jokes. He's like, you know, I go in, I, tr- I try to do a hearing test. I'm listening for a beep. I'm like, it's going to be a good day. I'm going to do this. Okay, I hear a beep. It's loud and clear. Ooh, good one. And he pushes a button, right? And so he's so excited. He goes, I don't like going for hearing tests because it's never like I go in there one day and they're like, wow, your hearing's gotten a lot better. Like, <laughs> right. it, your eardrums are looking tight. You've been working out. I love how he says it. So... For a standard client who has hearing loss, it's this kind of, it's kind of horrible, you know, like they go each week and they, or each year and they might find that their hearing's gotten a little bit worse. Like the best thing they can hope for is that nothing has changed. But I work with how the brain understands what it hears, the inputs that the brain, you know, gets from the ears. And the worst thing that can happen from someone working with me is that nothing changes. Like the best thing that happens is that everything changes, everything improves, that it's totally changed a person's lives. Um, if it's a child, maybe they've gone from not being able to read or spell and we actually teach them how to hear the individual speech sounds and then their reading and spelling takes off, you know, or it's an adult who has stopped going to parties because they can't hear in background noise. And all of a sudden they're reintegrating with their friends. And I, so I don't think that a majority of audiologists have had the ability to see the things that I have gotten to see, but that's changing. And I'm freaking stoked because honestly, the change has been me being able to take videos of actual clients and their experience and show it to them. And it's profound. I mean, in your TED talk, you share a story and I have to be honest, my first thought was, oh my God, that's fake because it was so incredible. I mean, it probably speaks to how well you're treating people, but it's so, uh, I mean, it's phenomenal. The change in this woman's ability to uh, decipher language. And you said that only 60% of universities are teaching it. So it seems systemic then if if we're not getting it taught, they're not going to be able to go out and diagnose it. I mean, an average audiologist, you think, who graduates school, do they, if they came across an APD case, do you think they would even know? That's changing, thankfully. But um, a previous, there was a survey done. Um, and this is the last time it was actually asked by our professional body in the U.S., which is called ASHA, American Speech Language Hearing Association. They actually asked audiologists, how many of you routinely test auditory processing for auditory processing in your clinics? And the answer was 1.4%. Really? Yeah. Disgustingly low. Wow. So, um, but I think... But an audiologist, if you say to them, do you ever have people who come in your clinic and based on what they're telling you, they say, you know, all of these things that we associate with hearing loss and, and then they go and they put the person in the test booth, they're doing the test and the test looks to be within normal limits. And the audiologist is like, wait, that doesn't match up. I thought this person had like a moderate hearing loss, like had a pretty significant hearing loss, but then... The hearing test is showing no hearing loss whatsoever. So how is this person having the impacts of hearing loss without actually having hearing loss? And if you ask any audiologist about that, they all know it. So I'm letting them know that is a red flag. 
All of those people need referrals for extra testing. And here's the crazy thing. A person can have hearing loss and auditory processing issues. Like that is a double whammy that you do not want to have. And people with hearing loss actually have a greater chance of having processing issues. Does the over-the-counter hearing aid shift, how you can just go to a Sam's Club and purchase a pair of devices, are those companies, I don't want to say misleading, but uh, I feel like consumers are unaware that, oh, I have an issue, like you said, hearing in background noise or understanding speech, and then they just go out and buy a set of devices. Should they be informing people that there are actually two common forms of auditory uh, deficiencies in people? It feels like people are being misled. You know what? Let, okay, let's just look at brass tacks. Like, let's go back to the client. Let's say there's a client who can't afford a lot, but they know that they're struggling. There is a chance that having an over-the-counter device is going to help them, right? So so there is there is research and data to show that an over-the-counter device just giving a little bit of amplification, even if a person doesn't have a significant hearing loss, there is a chance that that might help. So I wouldn't say, I think this is the issue. Companies see that there's this huge market share and a huge untapped market. And they're wondering if we circumvent the audiologists, if we make the prices a little bit lower, will people be more interested in hearing aids or some kind of amplification. But they have actually done studies and found that in countries with free or reduced cost hearing aids, the acceptance of hearing aids is not too dissimilar to what it was in the U.S. before OTCs. Really? So cost may not actually be the factor. But I do believe that part of auditory processing or part of generational poverty could be auditory processing disorder. So if a person is having a hard time understanding what they hear, if they are having a hard time learning, they may not get the jobs that are going to pay a lot to allow a person to get professional care. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. Going to an audiologist who is highly skilled and highly trained is going to be a totally different experience than getting an over-the-counter hearing aid. But if you are a person who has these problems, you need to do anything you can to make the situation better. So it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, in, in some ways, the OTC model is kind of perfect for a person looking for some help. But I have been working with clients and um, I had one client who had quite severe auditory processing issues. Um, she's an adult client. And as we've like been doing auditory training and working on things just a little bit by a little bit. And she tried some OTCs because she said, I don't feel like I need to go for really expensive hearing aids. I just want to see what amplification would do. And she put them on, she wore them for a while. And she was like, you know, actually, I feel like the changes that we've made just from training and like actually helping my brain to understand speech made a bigger impact. And I don't like how these are feeling on my ears. I don't like the inconvenience of having them. Um, she said it might work for some people, but it didn't work for me. So I think the future of what we're doing and the future of auditory processing is having every option available for the clients, meeting them where they're at and making their situation better. 
do we know what part of the brain has a hardware deficiency to cause APD? It could be anywhere along the auditory pathway. And if you think about listening, there are so many components to listening. And because there are so many different components, there's lots of different areas of the brain that may be connected to this. Um, there have been some people who have even talked about um, some processing issues happening even down to the level of like the auditory nerve or the cochlea, which is mind blowing to me because I've thought about all of this being further up the auditory pathway. But even the way that the right hemisphere works with sound compared to the left hemisphere, um, if a person is right handed, most people would say that their right ear is their strongest ear because the right ear has, you know how like the brain often has the mirror image right. of, you know, the, the actual structures in the brain that support something. So the right ear has this really fast, super highway of myelinated nerves that go from the right ear to the left hemisphere where most of the language is processed. Um, so the left temporal lobe. So lots of people say, Oh, I like the right my right ear on the phone the most if they're right-handed. If they're left-handed, all bets are off. We don't necessarily know where a person's auditory processing um, is happening in their brain all the time. Kind of wild. Um, but then the right hemisphere is usually quite good for tonal processing and looking like at the envelope of language. So the music of language and the prosody of language could happen more in the right hemisphere. So there's lots of different parts involved. We don't know everything about the brain. And I think as audiologists, it's really easy to start looking at these finite details and get so overwhelmed that we forget the important part. People need help. For me, because I get to test and treat, when I see a treatment that works and it helps to fix something that I saw in the initial testing, it actually starts making me a better diagnostician because I'm like, okay, that fixed that. I don't know why that happened to begin with, but I know how to make it better. And I think we have to be practical. And um, a lot of the old school um, auditory processing work, aside from, I'm going to go ahead and say my mentor, Jack Katz, has understood the important part from the beginning. Um, but basically, what what problems does a person have? And what does it do? What can we do to fix those problems? And as adults, could anything be more important? And for children, having them live their best life immediately is always the goal. How often do you see someone with a brain injury come in? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm working with a fascinating brain injury case right now. Um, this person um, was a pilot and crashed his plane. Oh my God. And he lived. He lived, um, but the the windscreen went into or windshield went into his brain. Um, and so here we have a highly, highly intelligent person who now has a little bit of hearing loss, but could not. He had kind of like this not severe hearing loss, but couldn't understand what anyone was saying. And we're doing auditory training. I'm working with um, Dr. Rachel Cohen. Um 
uh, a colleague of mine and he's she's doing auditory training with him and finding really remarkable results. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of good potential to help people with brain injury, potentially um, mild cognitive impairment or dementia, uh, autism, ADHD, run the gamut. Now, I know there are links between hearing loss and the onset of dementia, which I think is due to a lack of inputs. But are there studies on on untreated APD and dementia? (gasps) Joe, do you read my mind? Are you reading (laughs) my mind right now? That's sick. Um, Yeah. So so there is a link and there there have been some huge studies that have demonstrated that link. If we think about it. The auditory sense, we are constantly making millions of computations um, of what's going on in our environment. We call it auditory scene analysis. I can hear a car drive by um, while you and I are talking. I'm not even focused on that. I know that car isn't a part of our conversation. I know it's not dangerous that that car isn't going to crash into my house. But our brain is constantly doing that when you have hearing loss, you may be decreasing those kind of calculations that are happening in your brain. That's not what they have ruled to be the significant factor. But just from the work that I do, that makes sense that you're not having your brain doing all of that work kind of over time. Uh, the auditory sense is the most fleeting. You know, if something visually, it it's there for a long time. But you know, over milliseconds, something is here and it's gone. I do think that there is a potential link between auditory processing and dementia and untreated auditory processing and dementia. And I, I know that we can treat auditory processing disorder. So what does that do to a person's, an individual's, um, ability to, uh, have a better life for a longer period of time? Is it a safe assumption that everyone should at least attempt to, well, here, let me back up. Without seeing a professional, can you help yourself with a processing disorder? Are there resources available online to just kind of better yourself? Because hearing loss is forever, which I don't think most people understand. I mean, there's unfortunately this thought where, oh, I'll just get an implant or it'll come back. And it's like, no, once you lose your hearing, it's gone. But APD is treatable. How much can you really do on your own just with what's openly available or is it not really much? I mean, okay. So I think this almost comes down to personality. Like how many people have an app on their phone um, for working out? You know, it's kind of like there's, There are things that are accessible. I have a program myself. It's not my favorite thing. Um, I, I wish that it would be better, but I think the problem that it's not better isn't necessarily a problem with the program. It's this, when you're doing something asynchronously, when you're doing something at a different time, you know, it lacks a little bit of the richness of interpersonal communication. Like my my favorite way to do things is one-on-one. Um, I actually think that the future of this work is more group setting. So doing group auditory training. How far would yoga have gone if we were only doing yoga one-on-one, right? So I think group auditory training would be a better idea compared to doing apps and things because certain apps treat certain difficulties. And I think that sometimes when a client 
tries an app that works on something very specific that they don't have a problem with, then they start thinking, hmm, does auditory training even help? Right? And so some sometimes I think some of these programs can almost discredit things because a person has an experience that isn't similar to what they would have in the clinic or one-on-one with a client. Um, so it's kind of those apps and things are a little bit like the OTCs, <laughs> the over-the-counter hearing aids of auditory training. They're hit or miss. They're hit or miss. And they're hit or miss for the individual problem and or the individual with an individual problem. Does that make any sense? But but at the same time, at the current moment, when I first started doing this work in 2008, there were 250 audiologists and speech-language pathologists doing this work worldwide. And they were having a hard time finding each other. So I created an online searchable map so that people could find the audiologist or SLP near them doing this work. And it was my goal for the work that I'm doing to double that number. And I'm really excited to say that we are very near to doubling that number. So there's about 500 audiologists and speech language pathologists specializing in this. Someone said yesterday, oh, you know, I'm the only person doing this work in Chicago. And I was like, actually, I'm sorry. There are more. I'm so excited. And finally, Texas, which was like a barren wasteland of auditory processing, um, finally has a lot of really great clinicians as well. So, uh, yeah, a little bit exciting. How much of it of APD is genetic versus environmental? So there was a study done at the University of Auckland by an amazing researcher named Dr. Suzanne Purdy. And it's a part of a larger study called the Pacific Island Families Study. So it's a thousand people who are Pacific Islanders who are being longitudinally studied throughout their lives. They want to check a bunch of things. So the wild thing was, Suzanne was like, let's check auditory processing in these kids. And so They were testing the children, and I think the children were even a little bit older, like 12 years of age. So usually by the age of 12, a person doesn't have a lot of middle ear infections. You know, that usually isn't much of a problem. But she found, because in this study, they needed to make sure, okay, this person has healthy ears. They don't have any problems happening at the moment. She found that she had to refer a very large percentage of those children to get their ear health improved um, before they could even do this testing. Quite often, First Nations people have flatter and shorter eustachian tubes than, you know, Anglo counterparts. Um, So I don't know why that happens, but there is a, a higher chance of having middle ear disorders and it, it is a problem and it is a systemic problem that we need to be doing a better job of helping because if, if our ears are the gateway to our brain, we need to make sure that that pathway is like quite solid. But what was interesting about her study is that she found that up to 32% of Pacific Island children had auditory processing difficulties. Wow. Huge. And there were five factors she was looking into. Um, One was maternal health and well-being. One was environment. One was diet. One was, I believe, education. And uh, the fifth one, oh, middle middle ear health. So, So 
part of those are genetic things and part of those are environmental things. But we need, if, if there is a group of people who need more support, looking at the ears is a brilliant place to start. So this was on one study of, of one group of people, but I have to imagine there are other races, cultures, communities where this same issue in the ear or maybe a different one that affects them is just as rampant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, there, there have been a few studies on uh, male or adult male violent offenders or prison populations with these high percentages, like 80%. And, and honestly, within my own profession, I think quite a lot of us have auditory processing issues because we're like, oh yeah, I totally understand what it feels like to have hearing loss. No, I don't have hearing loss myself. No, I don't know anybody with hearing loss. I, I just can't hear in noisy situations, but oh no, auditory processing disorder doesn't exist. That's not a thing because I experience it all the time. I'm just kidding. I love my profession and like there are some really, really incredible humans in it and that are up and coming. So, and the, the thing that I wanted to ask you specifically about, I'm curious about people who are already deaf because they're not getting any auditory input, but they're still absorbing language. And at some point I feel like the roads would meet where they eventually get into the brain and you're absorbing it. So is it safe to say that the issues with APD happen before that point of them getting into the brain? Or if you're deaf, can you have APD, but it's just not called APD? Yeah. So we don't normally test the auditory processing abilities of a person who has severe to profound hearing loss. Um, However, I'm doing it because I think it's fascinating. So what prevents a lot of people from getting into this is we want we want to do tests that have normative data. Can we take a sample of the population? Can we say, okay, you're doing far worse than other people your age? But with hearing loss, it's a little less important to diagnose a person with an auditory processing disorder. And it's more important to say, okay, where are you at? Can we improve it? So I've started working with people who have cochlear implants and also auditory brainstem implants. So auditory brainstem implants happen when, or, so this is a different type of device. And there are, I think there are like a thousand people worldwide with this device. So I have three clients with an ABI. Um, all three of these clients have something called neurofibromatosis type two. And basically what happens is they lack a gene that suppresses tumors. Um, and these tumors love the auditory nerves. And basically if you get a tumor that goes in between basically your cochlea, your organ of hearing and the brain on the nerve, then it, then even if you put a cochlear implant inside the cochlea and like electrically stimulate the cochlea, that's not going to get anywhere. It's going to get stuck up against that, that tumor. So what they do instead is they open up the brainstem, electrically stimulate different areas and see if the brain can sense sound. And yeah, only 80% of the people who get these actually do experience any kind of sound 
from this. And, and the best they really say is the best you're going to do is hear life noises. There's a man, um, and he will allow me to say his full name. His name is Matt Hay. And he is a person to watch because, uh, Channing Tatum has bought the rights to make a film about Matt's life. And Matt has an auditory brainstem implant. Um, so Paramount Pictures may be, may be starting on that project. And the amazing thing is a person like Matt, he got his 16 years ago. Um, he's a good friend of mine. And he taught himself how to hear. There's this amazing NPR podcast that goes all over his story um, called Soundtrack of Silence. And basically he used, he re-listened to music that he knew and loved, like Beatles music um, and uh, the Bee Gees. He, he re-listened to that music after he got the brainstem implant to try to match up what he remembered with what his brainstem implant was helping him here. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> so when you say life noises, I mean, yeah. thuds, whistles. I mean, yeah. you can't decipher. I mean, well, has he described to you what he's hearing? Yes. Yes. He says, if a person's normal hearing is a box of 64 crayons with a flip top lid and a built in sharpener, he's like, my hearing is like the three crayons with the Applebee's kid menu. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that so much. But basically he said when, and I could quote him all day long. He is just absolutely fascinating. Um, but he said that when you are deaf, hearing an oven timer sounds like a choir of angels. So basically the best he was ever given hope to hear was that they said, okay, you might be able to hear a car go by. You might be able to, um, yeah, hear a fire alarm, you know, like that, maybe that's the best you get. And Matt is one of those people who doesn't just settle for, okay. Um, so he taught himself how to understand speech. And so when I met him, he was understanding about 60 to 70% of what he was hearing. We did auditory training with him, the same auditory training that I would use with a child, but instead of a child with normal hearing, I was working with him with hearing loss and we had outrageous outcomes. Like he's able to understand speech in quiet about 80 to 90% of the time and only 10% of people who have auditory brainstem implants have that ability. Wow. Um, <laughs> the the differences between a cochlear implant and this brainstem ABI are they roughly, um, do they have the same ability to discern different sounds or is a cochlear implant much, much, much better from what you've heard from people? Or it's the opposite? Oh, so much better. So much better. Because what the cochlear implant, the cochlea looks like a snail. And what we say is that it's tonotopically organized. What that means is along the snail, you've got some low um, you've got pitches all along the snail. So wherever, so what we can do is we can basically kind of like a roto rooter where we're feeding like a line through it. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. we're, we're feeding a line through it and wherever there are little, um, shocks along the snail shell, shell, the brain interprets that as a pitch or a sound, right? So, 
doing something like this, where the organ of hearing is actually sending those signals to the brain, has a much better chance that compared to, let's open up the brainstem, let's shock it in different spots, and let's see what your brain thinks of it. And the fact that Matt has been able to make sense of what he is hearing is a miracle. And most of that miracle was done by him because he gave himself auditory training for 16 wow. years. Um, and, and he, he talks about how he was, he actually did an Ironman after not even being able to walk. Like, I'm telling you, this guy's phenomenal. And he said the way that he learned how to swim instead of getting a coach is he would go to the YMCA, put goggles on, jump under the water and into the water and look up and watch the elderly women swim above him and try to try to do what they were doing. Um, I, I love that. I like like Edna, Edna, show me your ways. Um, That's incredible. That great. It sounds very invasive to go into someone's brainstem yeah. and and allow them to hear. Uh, I'm off topic, but what will the impact be with him and? Well, I guess, did he ever enter the deaf community? Did they ever like embrace him as one of their own and then he's going to leave or has he talked about it? it? That's a part of the story that he was basically in, in college. And um, one of the ways that we find out that a person has neurofibromatosis type two is because they have a hearing test and the hearing test results are different between the two ears. That can give us a sign because the ears are on the head and they should be around the same noise. They should, they have the same parents. They're around the same, you know, they've, they have equal chance of having hearing loss. So when there's just hearing loss in one side, we do get concerned. If anyone is listening to this and you're like, okay, one of my ears is definitely worse than the other, go get your hearing checked by an audiologist, please. Um, so they found that his hearing was really different between the two ears. And he, he was like listening on the phone and he just couldn't quite understand, went and had that hearing test done, found out that he needed to have an MRI. The MRI showed the tumors. Um, and they basically said, hey, you are most likely going to lose your hearing. But, you know, that's definitely better than dying, which he was like, wow, that's not really that helpful, but thank you. Um, so he did wear hearing aids for a period of time and, um, and just slowly uh, he lost his ability to hear. And then he remembers the day where he lost all of his hearing. And it was at that point that they decided to do an auditory brainstem implant. Uh, he had been trying to learn some sign language and figure out, you know, what, what, what the other alternatives would be. Um, there's also this part that you may not consider, but when, when a person gets a cochlear implant or an auditory brainstem implant, they're implanted and then they go a period of four to six weeks while it heals around the implant where they don't hear anything. So it's this, just this awful silence um, until they can turn the device on. They call that activation. And those, those are the videos that you see online. The baby's crying, oh you gosh, know. Yes. Um, oh, so yeah. it, it's, it's that. And it's so overwhelming. But I think what my profession needs to do a better job is after a person gets that switched on, is saying, okay, we are going to walk the journey with you. We are going to teach you how to understand what you hear. And there are some programs that are doing that. Don't get me wrong. But then there are some other programs that are like, download this app, teach yourself how to hear, 
you know what you should do? You should just wear it all the time. Watch movies, you know, like, yeah, that's great supplements to an auditory training program, but we would not put a prosthetic limb on someone and and say, all right, here's an app. Learn how to walk. Set them loose. Make sure you walk yeah. everywhere. You know, like, like, <sighs> yeah. But I, I, I'm really excited because I think the auditory training that I've been taught how to do and a lot of audiologists are now learning how to do has some huge potential to make the outcomes awesome regardless of a person's hearing status. If a person has hearing loss, they actually need above average auditory processing in order to make up for, you know, long periods of sensory deprivation and like this distortion that's actually happening in their brain from their ears. Are some languages more prone to APD? Because I think of, I don't speak French, but I have a feeling there are some languages where the phonetics between sounds are much more similar whereas maybe naively i think english is very easy to understand probably because i speak it but are there any studies on which languages have this more than others is there any sort of data there well so this is the problem is there aren't a lot of tests in lots of languages to assess this (laughs) right okay so that's that is a problem um but i think we're going to see as time goes on um here, here's something funny. I met someone from France and I was talking to them about what I do. And they're like, oh, do you not have? And they said that three-year-olds, there's a specialist who works with three-year-olds when they're not developing speech sounds, not like a speech language pathologist, but when they're not understanding the speech sounds. And I was like, oh yeah, that's not a thing really in the US. Like, so maybe, and you are right. There are some languages that have less contrast between the sounds. Um, even in New Zealand compared to the US, the vowel sounds have very little difference between them. Like in America, I'm like, ah, eh, eh, ah, ah. Whereas in New Zealand, my mouth might be more closed. Eh, 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 ah, ah. So like a lot less contrast, right? And, and so it almost feels like you have more potential to have problems with processing. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I'm currently working with my research assistant who lives in Beirut, Lebanon. Um, her name is Fatima Abbas and she's teaching me Arabic based on the speech sounds. So we're kind of reverse engineering what an auditory processing assessment might be in Arabic by having her work with me, treat me, because let me be honest, I could not hear r and h. Yeah. The differences between those two for quite a while. I got it now. I got that. It's like a KH and a, there's, it's like a, what is it called? Very throaty, yeah. Yeah, yeah. super, <laughs> super throaty. Um, a uvular scrape if you will. Um, so, so it's really interesting. I can't wait to see what the future of this looks like, but I know that we can change the world. If more people had better auditory processing, it's entirely treatable. And the outcomes from seeing improvements in a person's ability to hear are well worth whatever energy it takes for me to get there. (laughs) I, absolutely believe you you mentioned once that you can test newborns for apd yeah who can't yeah. speak and who don't know language so i was confused how you're doing this what what yeah. sorts of assessments are you doing on them yeah so there's a woman named nina kraus um and she's at 
the University of Northwestern. She's a PhD as well. And Nina has discovered a way to put three electrodes on the scalp and measure how the brain processes sound almost in this like 3D kind of way. She She's able to visualize almost how a person can track pitches and it, it's actually phenomenal. So she believes we could do this in at birth for any person speaking any language um, or, you know, and I think this is really exciting. So Nina has discovered a way also to record how a person's brain hears. Really? So she can actually record how music is played. Or she can play music to a person, record the brain's responses, and then play back how the brain was hearing songs. And she has demonstrated this by playing back Beatles songs who are played three different healthy brains listening to it. And you can hear the differences between how the brains heard it. So you can hear how someone else is hearing. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I know. And so Trippy. in case your brain is going there, you're like, but what if we did that with Matt Hay? Right? Because he taught himself how to hear with the Beatles. And so we did it. So we met at, U North, uh, <laughs> at the University of no Northwestern. And we, he was the very first person with an auditory brainstem implant to have what we call the frequency following response done with him. So we played sounds to him and we recorded how his brain heard those sounds. And what was phenomenal about it is we found that each individual speech sound, his brain, like the input to his brain does not look like a normal human listener, normal hearing listener. But why would it? He's not hearing acoustic sound. He is not hearing with his ears at all. He talks about how his ears are just a fancy place to hold his glasses. So he is hearing everything through shocks to his brainstem. And what is received by his brain doesn't look like what's received by your brain or my brain. But he can distinguish those different speech sounds, which is... Absolutely phenomenal. What does a normal one look like for someone who hasn't seen the data or what this yeah. 3D map looks like? Yeah. So a sound wave and a brain wave can look similar to each other. So it's um good question. Have you seen have you seen those like Etsy designs where it's a song? And if you use um, a certain app, you can play the song. So you you see sound waves like this. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It's like, oh, this is art of a, of a song lyric. Oh, yes, I right? have. Yes. I mean, you're a podcaster, so you know what a sound wave looks like. Right, yes. Well, Nina's approach can actually get the brain wave, analyze it, we have, she has to splice the recording up. So it's not like it comes out of the brain looking exactly like it did, but you record the brain in certain segments and little snippets, and then you put them all together 
and the sound wave and the brain wave don't just sound alike, they look alike as well. Interesting. So it's a one-to-one then. She's not doing any algorithms or changes to it. It's literally, she takes that brain wave. That is what the sound wave would have looked like going into your head. And then you can rehear what that person. Interesting. Okay. It, it sounds really Star Trek, doesn't it? Um, she is a genius. And the fact that she has identified this, she has a, a new book out um, that's really, really quite good. And it's called Of Sound Mind. Um, and one of the cool things that she talks about in her book is that they put plants, they put a Bluetooth speaker by plants that played water sounds and the the um the roots of the plants grew toward the water whoa sound the water sound it's not even real water we tricked the plants Aha. Wow. <laughs> take that plants not even water there <laughs> that is ridiculous right the plants are listening watch out watch out what you say so Okay, can other animals get APD? Like, if if you went into a zoo and and you saw like the the chimpanzees, what would go through your head to be like? I think that guy might have it. <laughs> okay, so my my husband thinks that our dog has it because we were doing. I mean, I was doing auditory training with my dog. Um, before I had a kid, I mean, what else was I going to use as like a guinea pig, right? And so, and he would, if I would tell him to go get his bowl or his ball, he sometimes had a little bit of difficulty with it um, because those are phonetically quite similar to each other um, or phonemically quite similar to each other. So, <laughs> bell, bowl, you know, those, those are similar. Um, and so my, yeah, my husband's like, yeah, our dog has APD. It's really embarrassing. Which, by the way, it's not embarrassing to have APD. Some people are like, oh my gosh, does this mean I'm not intelligent? In fact, a lot of very highly intelligent people that I know have processing difficulties. So this is completely unrelated to intelligence. Um, but, but you can see how it can have huge impacts on a person. Absolutely. And well, because dogs can be deaf. I mean, yeah. it's very common for dogs as they age, they can't for hear as sure. well anymore. So it only makes sense then that a dog could have APD right? or of course any they could. animal. For yeah. sure. For sure. So um, that would be a huge area of business that you could make nuns of dollars testing the animals for APD. I mean, especially if your chimpanzee is having a hard time learning to read. Um, but if I was in a zoo and if I saw a chimpanzee kind of like unaware of their environment, um, yeah, I might... I might I might think that's a possibility. And I think most people who hear this, the symptoms, I think is what you'd call it, of APD, you might go, oh, it sounds like this, or it might be you know, mixed with that. How do you decipher? Someone comes into your clinic and they go, I'm having issues, and they overlap a lot of other things. What's the telltale sign for you that it's APD, not an ADHD or other? So it's really interesting. I think I think most people who have ADHD should get an auditory processing assessment just to see what could be treated from a sensory side of things. A lot of the the syndromes or um, disorders that may also happen alongside uh, alongside auditory processing issues aren't necessarily easy to treat. So from a practical standpoint, as an adult, if I had 
these difficulties, I'd be looking, okay, what part of this could be processing? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, it's prob, it's auditory processing or ADHD, but it can definitely be both. Um, but for me, it's interesting because I'll talk to friends who will say, oh, I've just been diagnosed with ADHD. And you know, that's usually about the least surprising conversation ever. I myself was diagnosed with ADHD at seven years of age um, by my family doctor because it was the 80s and that's just kind of what everyone was doing, right? Um, but, But what's interesting to me is I'll say to a person, what are the parts that make you realize that ADHD is your difficulty? And then they'll say, oh, I can't hear in background noise. I can't remember what people say. I really struggled listening in school. I can't I can't pay attention for long periods of time before I get tired from listening. <laughs> like, okay, all right, like all of these things are auditory processing disorder. You know, like it's kind of funny, but a doctor once said a really brilliant thing to me. He said, not every time you hear hoofbeats do you think of a zebra. And, you know, zebras are common. Horses are common. Horses are more common than zebras. A majority of people would think, ADHD, but just based on what the what the prevalence of auditory processing disorder likely is in the population, I think that we should be considering APD a bit of a a horse too. So there's one other thing. There was a there was a study done that showed that one in five adults who said they had a hearing problem actually have a normal audiogram. So that was the Framingham cohort study. So this is like from 1989. So 20% of adults who say, oh yeah, I definitely have a hearing loss, have normal hearing sensitivity. So if 20% of us potentially (laughs) say, I struggle to hear, that's huge. That's huge. And I mean, in some populations, it's way more than that. I mean, I wonder yeah. who they were, you know, talking to in that study. Uh, people in the UK. So oh, okay, so yeah, yeah, we've narrowed it down. There you go. Now, ADHD is covered by insurance, if I'm not mistaken. But APD does insurance cover treatment for APD? Here's the deal: in order to get coverage, you have to have providers doing it. <laughs> When we were sitting at that nasty 1.4% of the audiology population doing this work, there was no freaking way we were going to get reimbursement. Now, um, there are there are some codes. And also, can I say that living outside of the U.S., it's really wonderful not to have to think about insurance most of the time because I hate that the that insurance in the U.S. almost prevents a person from getting great medical care as opposed to um, making that easier. And also, my heart goes out to every single healthcare provider in the U.S. because the reimbursement rates are going down. The the middlemen in the middle are the ones making the money as opposed to the healthcare providers. Like it, the squeeze is real and it's awful. But a majority of audiologists who do auditory processing work do have to go private pay for this work. But if you've got a child who, let's say if they don't get auditory training, if they don't get an auditory processing assessment and they don't get auditory training to treat it, like 
maybe they're going to learn to read at eight years of age, you know, and what what do their job outlook? What does their job outlook look like in the future? So I would say this is definitely an investment in your future. If you're an adult, um, people with auditory processing issues really struggle vocationally. They can at least they can struggle socially like the impacts of this are real and they are felt. Um, and like my client Jackie in the TEDx talk, um, she was, she was a, an HR director. So very important as a human resources director to understand what a person is saying, to remember what they're saying. And just doing minimal auditory training was a game changer for her. She doesn't have to keep wearing hearing aids every day. She didn't have to do over-the-counter devices. Like she's actually understanding what she hears. Um, auditory training is covered in some states for speech language pathologists to do, some states for speech language pathologists or audiologists. Anyway, I look forward to changing that in the future, um, but it turns out you have to have quite a lot of money <laughs> And to have political impact in the U.S. And uh, Melinda Gates. So, <laughs> yes, the something you posted also I found really interesting was your use of augmented reality with children. And I think you were using filters to keep their attention and you were, you know, a bunny rabbit or something like that. But 50 years from now, where do you think technology goes with auditory processing treatment in a perfect world. Oh man. Oh my gosh. My dream, my dream. Yeah. I do love using augmented reality. I use zoom avatars all the time with children. I mean, cause a kid might want to look at my regular stupid face for like five minutes, but like one of those avatars, I can keep them going for like 45 minutes wow. and, and I'm a shapeshifter. So I'll be a bunny one minute, yeah. fox the next. You don't Look even out. know when panda's coming. Woo! It's amazing. So it's funny because, you know, and also check this out. There could be some connections to COVID-19 brain fog and auditory processing disorder. Really? Yeah. Anyway, that's a, a another story. But what my goal, what I would love to see in the future is I would love to see some accessible testing where a person has a test done. Maybe it's even in schools or, you know, um, kind of as a, like a regular screening where they get picked up and their data based on those tests tells us which interventions are going to have the biggest impact the soonest. And, and what does that training look like? Maybe they're strapping on some virtual reality goggles. Maybe they're going to their group auditory training. Maybe listening is taught in school. What? Are you kidding me? Interesting. Why not? Because the first sense that we develop is our hearing sense. And why is it that we do not leverage that in schools? I'm currently doing auditory training with 75 five-year-olds at my daughter's oh my <laughs> elementary school uh, using the augmented reality, my friends. Oh, yes. Wow. Uh, it's fantastic. So I, I think there is a lot to be leveraged with AI and machine learning on how we can collect some data points to actually really move the needle. Because if 
any intervention out there is helping people. I want to know about it. I want to study it. I want to help make these lives better because these people have been waiting far too long. How fast, and I forgot the woman's name, the one with the frequency. Jackie. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Nina Um, Krause. Nina, how fast can her system work? Because I, I imagine a point in the future where you're hearing real time what someone is hearing and you're you can diagnose the severity instantaneously or what's a processing like for her to be able to run those? Yeah. So so we're already doing a test similar to that for children. It's called the New- Universal Newborn Hearing Screening Program. And what they do is actually one of these tests where we take electrodes, we put them on the skin, and we measure the voltage changes across the skin in uh, response to sound, and we can track brain waves in response to sound. I mean, it all sounds crazy, but we're already doing that part. So, so that part is happening. So we're not listening to what their brain is. We're just checking to see, does this signal go all the way up to the brain at a relatively normal volume level? So that's the, that's what's already happening. Thanks to Christine Yoshinaga Itano, um, uh, from Colorado. But, but if we combine the powers of Nina Krauss plus Christine Yoshinaga Itano, (laughs) anyway, um, so we're, we're doing part of this already. It'll be interesting to see how we can make it faster, easier, you know, reliable. Um, Lots of people, I think lots of people in my field can sometimes be um, a little bit afraid of the unknown or a little bit afraid of the gray area. But I don't think that that should make us stop. Like for me, that drives me. I'm like, okay, there's something here. Um, I am, I'm just one person, but it is really fun to start getting involved in research and, um, working with some really talented humans that are trying to solve these world's problems. And, um, luckily I, I see a path and a way forward. Do you have time, Angela, if I ask you a couple more? I do. I do. This probably went a lot of different directions that you were not anticipating. Oh, I love Um, it. I am I am actually creating a documentary on Matt um, Matt Hay. I'm hoping that you know when his movie comes out on Paramount that this can be that documentary that you watch on Netflix or Paramount Plus um, to like watch what he is actually like and kind of get a little bit of his story. Um, but also we want to make sure that we don't upset Paramount sure, <laughs> in yeah. the meantime, because yeah, Channing has that story, but I think this is just going to be extra content for them. Wow. So you're shooting a documentary right now and also doing your, you know, normal day job of being an audiologist. What is that like? What's the learning curve? I mean, are you the producer yeah. on it? Yeah. So, um, I have, I'm the producer, um, and it's hilarious. So Matt brought up a point. He said, not a lot of audiologists actually look at the human element. Like if you go to a conference, it's like, here is this client. And then they put up a picture of a hearing test result and people are like, oh yeah, I know that client. (laughs) You know, I can figure everything out. And he's like, no, these people are moms and dads and whatever. So there are not a lot of there are not a lot of, there's not a lot of content that's been created from the perspective of the person with hearing loss. So he is also, he is my co-executive producer. And, um, I was sitting in a room, I was sitting like in the corner. We had two camera guys, an audio guy, 
two directors and then we had Matt and Nina Krauss having this conversation and the lighting was just perfect in the room. And like, it was just that moment of this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an executive producer because this stuff is absolutely riveting. Wow. There's a movie and I can't remember what it's called. He's in a metal band and then he goes deaf. Yeah. Sound of metal. Sound of metal. And then he gets uh, an implant, which if I remember right, is very, you wouldn't lose your hearing from exposure that quickly, right? Like become deaf instantly. Like that would be a genetic thing, wouldn't it? You can have, you can have a sudden impulse of like, I think 140 dBSPL. Um, What would that be like? You can have a sudden, like a jet, a jet next to you. Okay. You can have a sudden exposure that permanently changes your hearing. Like completely deaf? Uh, maybe not necessarily completely deaf, but, um, but what's more common, way more common is that a person wakes up one day or they're going throughout their day and one of their hearing, they have a sudden sensory neural hearing loss, um, which a lot of people don't know that is actually an emergency and you need to go to the ER because we found that if a person gets steroids within 24 to 48 hours of that, they can sometimes get some of that hearing back. But a majority of people are like, oh man, I think it just might be wax and they'll wait three or four days. And by that point, that window has closed. Oof. So I think I think there needs to be like a huge push for more people to understand that hearing healthcare is quite serious and you really need to get things looked into um, as quickly as possible. And I think that is that is one of the downsides of OTC with people trying to solve their own problem. Uh, they might miss some really significant healthcare concerns like neurofibromatosis type 2 or sudden hearing loss. Is there anything between a cochlear implant and a hearing device? Because cochlear implants, if you've never heard what they're hearing it's very like robotic it sounds doesn't sound like normal hearing but people go i'll just get one of those if i lose my hearing it's like well i don't think that's really what you think it is is there anything in the middle are we trying to develop a way for people to hear normally again like is there any way to save the ear yeah so there's a lot of different things there were some therapeutics that were on the market for a while because they could see that chickens and whatnot could regrow their inner hair cells, things like that. Basically, okay, you want to know, is there something between a hearing aid and a cochlear implant? And you are right. There there are even people who would come into my office and they're like, I don't need a hearing aid. I'm not deaf yet. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that would, whoa, that's really not ideal. Um, I do not work with cochlear implants, to be honest. I other than doing therapy, I do therapy with them, but I have never programmed a cochlear implant. I have been in on a few of the surgeries, didn't do any cutting myself. That's not my scope of practice. Um, but a cochlear implant. So if you think that a, a normal hearing can hear from 20 hertz, low, low bassy 20 hertz, all the way up to 20,000 hertz, like we hear all of those pitches between 20 and 20,000. Like that's a huge range from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high note. If instead of having all of those 19,980 frequencies, if we hear all of those frequencies and instead we go for a cochlear implant, which they have between, I think, 24 to 32 electrodes on them that are shocking the cochlea on those different parts, the clarity of what you're going to get there isn't going to sound 
like what a normal human human ear does, but the brain is phenomenal at filling in the blanks. And with doing some auditory training, we can help the brain to start creating more richness for those those people. So there are other types of implantable devices. I think there was one called the ear lens. There's also hearing aids that can be kind of implanted. Uh, there's middle ear implants that also try to like, because we have the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrups, and it like basically jams the stirrups quite a lot. So there are lots of different options. There are lots of people who are interested in this. But I think from an audiologist perspective, we've had a lot of changes happen. And I think it's really important for us to realize that the more we can leverage what the brain can do in addition to this technology, the better the experience for not just the client, but for ourselves. So basically, however you're getting sound into your brain, there's a way to either improve it or, I mean, treat it if you're not hearing the way you you would like to be hearing. So if folks want to contact you specifically, Angela, how can folks do that or get a hold of some work you're doing? Yeah, good question. Um, So I'm all over LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way to hear my rants nearly daily. (laughs) Some of them I don't post. You wouldn't believe that. But um, uh, yeah, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to get in contact with me. A website? Uh, apdsupport.com and then if you're an audiologist auditoryprocessinginstitute.com is where I train audiologists and speech language pathologists how to do this work and bring out their inner badass awesome thank you so much Angela for coming on I really appreciate it it has been wonderful thank you for the questions this has been one of the best interviews i've ever been on especially not even audiology you're not even an audiologist and you're asking such great questions i can't wait to listen how you dive deep with everyone else too 